Hello. Good evening, good afternoon, good day, everyone. Thank you very much for coming by another Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story stream podcast thing. <laughs> Oop, I got a kitty eating treats next to me. So if you're crunching, it's her, not me, I promise. Uh, hello, Ashley, and hello, Bob. Good day. Welcome. Um, oh, and thank you, MT, for redoing. Oh, MT's almost at his uh, two years as a member here on YouTube. That's awesome, dude. I guess the, that's when you get the red die. Biggest one they let me put. Um, so, of course, today we are going to continue our story. Um, we will be staying with Seraph's group. This one. I know we finished with his, and I've been kind of bouncing back and forth. Uh, but today we're going to be continuing with some more of Seraph's story, or his side of the story, the current moment, before we're able to switch back over to artists and her gang. Gang of cutthroats. <laughs> uh, let's see. Cameron says, thank you for your Sky Factory 4 videos. See them all and carrying through the game. You're very welcome, Cameron. Thank you very much. I appreciate you saying that. Glad I could help. Uh, so, just as a brief recap of where we left off in the story, I was like, yep. So, in the last episode, uh, Seraph learned that Dina had left on a ship, had to go through a bit of rigmarole, and uh, also had to learn, it was actually learned who Dina really was. Back to be daughter of previous emperor of Oromon had in hiding since she was a child that she did not know who she was. So uh, that was a bit of a, a, a big surprise to them. Uh, but he still, of course, wanted to hardcore go after her. And so using um, the uh, local rebel rebels from the uh, rebellion of Oromon, distance, if you will, helped him get in touch with the next link in the chain. That's what it's referred to, the, where she's supposed to go in, in an emergency situation, where Tiara was found out, where people knew, figured out who she was and were after her. There, was, there had been for years made a path to get her to, to safety uh, that would lead her far to the east, uh, into lands we've never looked at or discussed before. Um, and each link in the chain was somebody's job to get her from point A to point B. They don't always know where the next person's going. That's a way of keeping that chain protected. So if it does go to, to, to someone and then that person who helped her get there gets caught or arrested or tortured, isn't able to give up where she's going to end up. Everybody only knows their piece. Um, and so they ended up having to go to speak with a captain. Uh, not just any captain, uh, a pirate captain that has been a, a minor scourge of the Southern Sea, what's known as now the Central Sea, for quite a while. Um, an elven captain. And his name was Captain Wavestrider. And when they showed up, he, he was scarred and such. He's definitely an older elf. Um, and they were like, hey, we want you to tell us where your ship took Dina, because it wasn't his ship, it was one of his ships. That took Dina and was like, well, if before I'll do any of that, you have to do something for me. And told them that not too far away from Ormond, which we all know, is Darshtopia, Darsh Fohammer's Islands, 
one of those islands is an island no one's ever able to stay, step foot on. Well, they kind of, but they don't get two feet. Anytime anyone goes on, on that island, huge ruby golems come out of the trees and just destroy them. Uh, you either flee or you die. Uh, and nothing that Darsh has been able to do for over 20 years has been able to get someone through that. And magic he's used, mages, so on and so forth. So he basically just has a couple ships, small and security ships, that circle the island, make sure nobody goes there for their own protection. And the captain, pirate captain, was like, I need you to go there and bring me back one of the red crystals. So large crystals, you can even see them from the shore in the distance, but large red uh, crystals that, that pop up out of the trees. Like, I just need, bring me back a piece of one. Yeah, if you can do that, I'll tell you where she is. Seated in doing that at all. No one's ever made it on the shore. And they've never seen any pieces of it on the shore. The crystals aren't on the shore themselves. They are up in the trees. Not like growing from the trees. You know, in the tree area. It's very heavily wooded, this forest. On this island. So Seraph, of course, accepts because he has no other option. This is the only person that can tell him where Dina went to next. So you can imagine he's not real happy with yet another delay. Every time he gets delayed like this, Dina gets further and further ahead. And it's a pirate captain. So, you know, how trustworthy is that to begin with, right? But he doesn't have a lot of options. So he agrees to go after this crystal. And that's kind of where we left off in the last episode. So... This episode, we're going to kind of continue from that. I have just a touch of early reading to do to get us uh, going. But this shouldn't take too, too long. And then we'll get into some more adventure. Okay? So, the Ruby Isle is the name of this section. Is That island has a name, but I can't remember it. <laughs> Somewhere in my notes. It's, no, it's been forever since we've mentioned this. The Ruby Island with this gemstones on it uh, were discovered very, very early when Darsh and first found these islands way back with the pirate lich and all that kind of business uh very early in the merged world's adventure before he settled these islands um they discovered this island had the ruby golems on it and, and no one could get past them so it was something that popped up regularly whenever we were dealing with darsh's islands when we played D, &D. um would pop up hey yeah did we ever find a way to get on that nope still haven't found a way we try this sure it didn't work okay so players never ever did get to find out what was involved with this island we'll see if maybe you guys will learn a little so the small boat cut through the ocean in complete darkness barely visible in the distance the lights of darstopia's main island could be seen an incredibly busy porch city ships sailed in and out at all times making this voyage very difficult the great port city was not the destination of the small boat, though. Instead, it moved steadily towards a different island, the Crystal Isle. Ships patrolled the waters, making sure no one approached the dangerous island, though few dared to try. Small boat that they're in, and when I say small boat, it's like a large rowboat. There's probably like four guys rowing, kind of thing. Uh, easily moved past these defenses as small as it was. Secrecy was important. The dark shores of Crystal Isle were barely in view when the small boat finally dropped anchor. 
They were inside the patrol circle, so there was little chance of discovery. So they moved past those where the ships sail around. They've dropped an anchor. They are not going into shore. They're a distance away from it. Um, so you've got one hour, said the one-eyed uh, human pirate. After that, you're on your own. Seraph looked at each of the four men on the boat. Charge was getting him here. It was clear none of them liked being this close to Darstopia. Neither did Seraph. Darsh was like an uncle to Seraph, and he didn't want the man to try and take Seraph back to Serenity. Because you'll remember, Seraph ran away with Deacon and Mugen, um, and they don't know that the other kids are following them and that the parents let them go. At this point, they're still under the assumption that they're running away. And should they end up in Darsh's hands, they know Darsh is a, a quick portal back to Serenity, and they've lost all the, all the distance that they've made. And I'm sure he doesn't want to bring Darsh into that. The pirates, of course, also don't want to get caught because you can imagine Darsh does not like pirates. Pirates are very often made example of when they are caught. So uh, pirates are not a big fans of being here, especially now they're on the edge of this island, which is super dangerous as well. So Seraph prepared himself for the swim. Most of his equipment was back on the ship with Deacon and Mugen. Both had been quite against Seraph going alone, but Captain Wavestrider was adamant that Seraph do so. Mostly because they don't have any chance of surviving on this island, really. Seraph had brought his sword and the amulet that cloaked him from magical scrying. Everything else he'd left behind. So remember, he has Draven's amulet that he got way back in the day where you cannot tell where he is magically. He's not going to take that off because he's, again, under the assumption he's running and Father or parent or mother might be using that to try, maybe trying to track him down magically. He doesn't know they're not coming after them. He brought his sword as well. While he normally has it on his belt, he would have had it very securely strapped to his back. He's going to be swimming. The last thing he wants is it to fall off. He probably would have got some leather straps or even a back sheath to put it in. Doesn't know if he'll need his sword or not. Doesn't know if it'll work against the golems, but he still wouldn't have come completely unarmed. Uh, Seraph readied himself and then dove into the cool tropical water, and quickly he made his way towards shore. So, point of contention, uh, point of, of, of matter. Historically, as soon as you're on dry sand is when the golems have come out. Um, Darsh, back in the day, was able to get, you know, he got in the water where it was like, you know, knee-deep, and... Uh, there weren't any issues. It wasn't once he stepped out of the water. Now, you can imagine waves are going in and coming out, going in and coming out. You have to stay in the water. Once you, if the if the water recedes, you're too close. And that's kind of how this works, how this island works. Once you are standing where there's no water, even if it's flashing in and out, that's that's considered land at this point. If you're out in the water and you're standing in, you know, your water's up to your waist and you're staying submerged the whole time, you're fine. And so when they have got to this island, Darsh and Heroes, they learn that diving into the water and swimming away, the golems never follow them into the water. Golems have never entered the water. It's not to say a little bit of water hasn't splashed up and hit them in the ankles, you know, kind of thing. Well, their ankles are tall, but you know what I mean. Uh, they've never pursued anyone once they reach the water. Basically keep them off the land. So... Seraph dives in. Uh, I say at the, the cool tropical waters. If you've ever been to the beach in a warm summer day, you know that at night the water can get a bit cooler, but it still stays relatively warm. 
in a nice tropical. And, and that's one nice thing about Darsh's area. Where he lives, it's tropical pretty much all the time. Uh, Darsh does not get snow or winter at all. The worlds that these islands are from are from a tropical-like area, uh, so it stays pretty nice all the time. Um, even Kronayar, the Minotaur Kingdom, which is quite a distance over to the west, uh, gets more of a winter than, than these islands do. So you can imagine, even in the even in the cool of winter, where Arduel and them are all being affected by cold, Darsh's islands were very much almost like a resort spot. So very often the wealthy might come to gamble. He's got casinos or whatever. You can imagine that they're gambling and entertainment. Darsh making money hand over fist on these islands. So Seraph wades in. The, all the information I just gave you about how the island works is the same information that Captain Wavestrider gave Seraph. Our knowledge, they will not pursue you into the water, but the second you hit dry sand, they're going to start coming. You're saying you're fast. Are saying you're strong. You're going to need that because if they get a hold of you, they will rip you apart. They will crush you. And that's normally what happens. They normally crush. You know what I mean? They normally take the, you know, smash down or step on. It's not too, they don't have weapons. Uh, and that's not to say they haven't grabbed the dude and ripped him apart, you know, in case of emergencies. But it's more of a try to smash or crush you kind of. MT says, same, came for Sky Factory Turtles, stayed for Mergeroll. So I appreciate that, MT. Thank you. Or tell him this. So he stops where the water's just a little waist deep, almost knee deep. Um, and he's kind of, you know, he's getting his first good look at the island. The sky is completely clear, stars everywhere, bright moonlight. He's still got a little bit of infravision that's helping him because he has infravision, but it's not super dark, so it's not as well as it could be. You can see the tree line. The tree line, this is a this is a good size island. This is not a tiny little island. The kind of island's got a little bit, of, little, almost like a little bit of a mountain in the middle. Like, not a massive one, but a small one. Uh, the trees go up it. You know, it would take a while to cross this island if it wasn't dangerous. Um, all of Darsh's islands are very large. This is the smallest one, um, but it's still a really good size. So he can see the tree line going left and right all the way. You can't, like, see around the island. Um, and this island is almost completely round. Uh, it's just slightly elongated. So it's, it's almost like a, a hill. Capsule kind of thing. Um, whereas the other islands of Darsh's are different shaped with coves and pockets and such. So he sees the tree line. He's like, okay. He can also make out above the tree line, the distance, some of the large red crystals that are shooting out of the ground. And it's not like just a solid crystal. It's like several of them popping out of the same area. So um, in my mind, if you've ever seen the the type of uh, rock formations where it's kind of quartzy on the bottom. It's got the purple crystals sticking out out of the top in different directions, almost like a spiky hairdo. Uh, that's what I'm imagining, except very red. Um, the crystals are long and thin in shape. I mean, you can hard to wrap your hand around the large one, arms around the large one, but it is longer and thin. It's got the flat sides on it that you'd picture from some type of crystal like that nature, where it kind of comes to points at the end. Um, that's the design in my head that these have always been, and they're like I said, they're but they're a very bright red. They're not rubies or anything of that nature. They just happen to be very ruby-like in color, but very differently shaped. So he's plotting on his lines. He's like he doesn't see anything like moving. He can hear the sounds of animals. He can hear birds and so on and so forth. So he knows there's animals in here. They nothing seems to attack them. Um 
He doesn't see any tracks in the sand from what he can see from where he is. He doesn't see anything that might inhibit him. But he knows the golems are out there. He, he's probably heard stories of them just from Darsh and his mom growing up. This is probably not the first time he's heard of these islands. He just may not know all the specifics that he's now been given information to, only that they're big, scary gem monsters. And the monsters appear to be made of the same thing or the same crystal that, that, you, that you see out there. They're made of the same type of thing. They're humanoid in shape. Um, they're not all spiky or anything, but their arms would be not perfectly smooth either. So he knows as soon as he hits the beach, supposedly the golems are going to come. So he's trying to plot out his course. He's like, all right, condensed carbon crystals. Very like that, Michael. <laughs> um, you can see from where he's looking, he's like, okay, I can see a crystal formation sticking out of the trees over here. That's the closest one to me that I can see. Now, there might be smaller ones in the trees, and maybe he won't have to go as far as he's thinking. But that's a good ways up in the trees. You can see it sticking up, but that's still the closest. In his mind, he's like, that's the one I'm going to go for first. He knows he has to be fast to avoid the golems, and he has to be fast because he's got one hour. That's the most that that ship's going to give him. Because you got to imagine, this rowboat had to row in a good distance, right? The pirate captain's not going to sail his ship right up into Darsh's waters. That's silly. So they have to get back out of here before the sun comes up. A small period of time. So he begins to start approaching, right? And sure enough, the second his, foot, his first foot hits dry sand, he can immediately hear noises coming from the tree. And he can see the trees starting to move. So imagine the island is not completely flat. I said it has like a little, like a little mountain in the middle. So you imagine that the tree line, if you're looking at it, goes up kind of like a slope, right? As the trees are going up, as the ground rises, so does the trees. So you start seeing trees moving and they start like, like it's getting closer to him. You can see the trees being pushed and moved. Maybe even hear one crack and fall over at some point or another. Um, and that's normally what happens. And sure enough, as soon as he starts to hear that, he starts bolting as fast as he can. And for Seraph, that's very fast. He starts making his way across the sand. Now, let me see where I'm at here. Mm, here we go. So he's only taken a few steps when the first golem comes out of the trees. The golems stand right at 12 feet high. And he sees two of them that are coming out. Pretty close to each other. Um, again, made of the same red crystal. They seem to kind of glow a bit in the moonlight. Now, that's important because the crystals you can see up over the trees don't. But these appear to be made of the same type of crystals, but they have a tiny bit of a glow to them. He only has a moment to really glance at them before he has to, you know, really push. But he can see that they don't have any real facial features. There's no eyes. There's no mouth. Their faces, you know, same. It looks like it's just cut from stone. So there's no anything of that nature. They have two arms, two legs. He doesn't say anything. It would be ears. There's no hair. They're not spikes sticking off them. They're relatively smooth and human shape. But again, it's you ran your hand across it. It would be like a crystal prism that has just the different facets and uh, sides on it. The thing he wasn't prepared for is how fast they are. And they start literally running across the sand towards him. And they're fast. Like, faster than a human fast. It's something that big and rock-like looking. He would have expected it to move slower, but instead, it's bolting right after him. Two of them are. Now, he, doesn't, he saw two lines moving in the trees very close to each other. He doesn't know if there's more out there or not. But right now, it appears that there's two of them. 
Wavestrider, the captain, couldn't give him a... No one knows how many are really in there, but there several have been seen at, at once. Sometimes it's just been one. just depends on who's going ashore. So he is making a bolt for it. So as he's hitting the tree line, the first one's almost caught up to him. And that's a concern. It's running faster than he is. And largely that's because as the size they are, you know, huge footsteps, right? They're more than twice his height. So he, they have to move less footsteps to, to move as quick as here. But again, something this big moving this fast is one of the things that makes it so dangerous. Um, he makes it into the trees right as he feels wind on the back of his neck where a huge fist had swung at him. And he hears a couple of trees literally explode as the fist just breaks through the trees. But he does make it to the tree line. Now, he's not trying to attack or defend himself. He's just dodging and running at this point. So once he hits the trees, they're still following him, but now they're not catching up as much because now he's dodging between the trees where they have to push them aside, break them, or whatever. He has a bit, he's able to at least stay ahead of them a bit trees. But as big and heavy as they are, most of the trees just get knocked out of the way. And right now, where he is right now, is the furthest anyone's ever seen to make that. No one's ever made it to the tree line before. So he has no idea what's in front of him. He can hear trees behind him cracking and all that stuff, and he can hear the big footsteps just coming after him. Sorry for that horrible sound effect. <laughs> so he's, and he's also running uphill. So this goes on for just a minute or two, right? You can imagine as fast as Seraph is, and the columns, but they're covering a lot of ground very, very quickly. And up ahead of him, through the trees, he's able to make out a crack. And when I say that, it's like the edge of a cliff. It doesn't appear to be too wide across, maybe 10 feet from what he's seeing. And there's several tree branches and such that are on the other side, trees that are going on both sides. He doesn't know how deep it is. So he starts heading that direction. His hope is that if he can, you know, jump across, maybe the golems can't jump. I mean, they're walking real fast. They might be able to. Maybe they're not that smart. Maybe they'll just walk right off the cliff and maybe you can use that against him. Because in the minute or two he's being chased, no other golems have shown up at this point. Still just those same first two behind him that he knows of. He is not stopping to look behind him, but it doesn't sound like, you know, now there's way more than there were before and not, there's not any in front of him. So as he approaches the cliff, he sure enough jumps across. And the cliff itself is not that deep. The little gorge that's between here, probably maybe 15, 16 feet. And you can hear water down below. So the water probably sloshed you. There's some rocks down there. He doesn't have time to, you know, sit there and stare at it. And he jumps. But when he jumps, he doesn't quite get the lift he was hoping for. He can jump really far, but he's also running through trees. And he manages to grab onto a tree branch that's kind of hanging up over the cliff, right? So he grabs that and he pulls himself up on, on it, ready to jump down to the ground and keep going. He then stops real quick to look behind him. He wants to know whether or not they're going to follow him across. That's a dangerous move because he's losing seconds. If they just hop across like it's nothing, which 12 feet tall, 10 foot hole, you know, they are heavy. There's the potential they'd be right there underneath of him. But he stops, and he turns around real quick, 
and the golems are just standing there. He can make out them through the trees. Their heads, top of their heads are kind of sticking through trees. You can see them through the trees. And they just aren't moving. They're just standing still. So he stays. He freezes. And he's like, how did I lose them? He's like, maybe this ridge is a line. Maybe they can't cross it. Maybe they can't cross water. That's, that's the big thing that pops into his head. He hears the water splashing below. And he knows he doesn't chase anyone out to the water. Maybe they can't get wet. And I've mentioned the water's hit their ankles and such before. Probably not their ankles. They're very tall. But water's hit them before and they haven't like crumbled or nothing like that. But his thought is, well, maybe there's something with the water. Maybe they can't follow. So maybe that benefits him. Doesn't mean there aren't any more in front of him. But he doesn't hear any of the noises of something large moving through the trees. So... So he decides, okay, at this point, he's going to chance, and worst case downward, he has to start running again. And he lightly hops down, climbs down, he's not that high up, hops down onto the ground under the tree. Immediately, he starts hearing the golems again. They start him just crack, trees behind him immediately start cracking, and he bolts, he starts running. And he, he jumps and grabs another tree branch and pulls himself up into it. And the sounds stop. Sarah's kind of sitting in those trees, in that tree for a minute, trying to figure out what's going on. And he realizes that any time he hits the ground, they come after him. As soon as he hit the dry ground on the beach, they came after them. They don't have any type of eyes or ears, so how are they tracking? Sound? Does it smell? Maybe not. But he starts thinking, maybe they can tell when he's walking on the ground. So he sees that there's another tree nearby, and using his strength and agility, which is top-notch, he jumps to the next tree. Again, grabbing it, stopping, turning around, but the golems haven't moved. And at this point, they're standing right at the edge of that little crevice. See him standing there looking across. Waits another minute, jumps to another tree further away. And at this time, the golems turn start to go back into the trees. They're going much slower, so the trees are swaying and such, but he doesn't hear the sounds of trees being broken. At this point, it's almost like they're being more careful to walk through the trees and not damage them. And after a minute or two, their sound completely disappears. So he's like, okay, that's, that's the thing. Touching the ground is the issue. Maybe it's the sand itself. He's looking down. You know, at this point, just like an island, it's not sand all the way across, because that dirt you see dirt at the bottom of the tree. So whenever I'm touching the ground, they seem to know where I am. Maybe I'm causing vibration. Maybe something magical about the earth. Gotta stay up in the trees. And he starts making his way from tree to tree. Now, as I mentioned, he's very lucky. This is a very lush island. He does not have to go far. Sometimes he can just step from tree to tree. But you can imagine someone like Seraph who's trying to hurry. This is, a, this is slowing him down. Having to maneuver, finding trees, branches that are strong enough to hold him up is another thing, right? You know, not all trees are the same height. So sometimes he's having to jump and grab on a tree. Now, like his father, he's, his hands and he, his fingernails are a little sharp. <laughs> Both Draven and Seraph, nails come to a little bit of points. And uh, it's not like he's shoving his fingers in the tree, but he's able to get a pretty good grip on them. 
Again, he's grabbed the two by four before and just shattered it by squeezing it. If you remember when he was a kid, when that deacon was getting attacked by the bully. So grabbing a tree and squeezing it hard enough to dig his fingers in is something he can do. With, a, with, a, with enough force, he could probably break one of these. Again, just trying to give examples of, of quite how strong he is. And he spent his whole life trying not to use it. Right? That's an important thing to remember. He spent most of his life having to hold that back for fear of hurting people around him. By accident, right? The only time he could really let go of it was when he was fighting with his dad. But still, in the back of his mind, there's that hesitation. And I say fighting, I mean sparring and training and such. He's always had that hesitation to, to really push himself because, you know, he has that ability to hurt people and he doesn't want to do that. So he slowly starts making his way towards what he believed was the direction of the crystal that he saw sticking out of the trees. It's a little bit harder now that he's in the trees. And so it takes him a while to finally get to a crystal formation. Now, luckily, the tree grows right up next to it. And he's able to get close to it. He walks out a branch and he's holding on. And the crystal's coming right through the tree. And the crystal next to him is probably a good foot and a half, two feet wide in diameter. The first thing he does is he reaches out and he touches it. And he realizes it's very smooth, right? It's got the different sides and edges, but it's very smooth. Um, and the other thing when he touches it is he's able to see that it feels very cool to the touch and more so than it should be, especially in, you know, the warm tropical thing here, it feels quite chilled to touch it. So he takes out his sword and he's like, well, I'm going to try and chip off a piece using the hilt. The thing's incredibly hard. He's not even able to scratch it. He tries, he's trying to scratch it. He's not even able to make a line on it. The thing is incredibly strong. He tries using his strength to break it or crack it, even hit it a couple of times. But the thing is super, super solid. So he lowers himself down one more branch and he starts looking around the ground. Maybe there's a smaller one he could break, sticking out of the ground that may not be as sturdy as these big ones. But he doesn't really see anything like that and there's no pieces on the ground. Unhappy with this, you can imagine. He's forced to move on and try to find another one because there's just nothing here he's going to be able to use. So now he has to try to make his way through the woods and find another one. And it's going to be a bit harder for him to do that. He was heading towards this one. Now he's got to try to figure out a direction. And he's moving from tree to tree. So it takes probably another 15, 20 minutes, if not longer, before he's finally able to come across another set of crystals. Now this one is larger these crystals. And again, there's eight or nine of them sticking out of the ground. They all like share a base. Uh, if you ever played Subnautica, the red crystals that are kind of coming out of the ground in one of the later issues, that's a video game, by the way. Uh, that's uh, that's kind of how I'm picturing this. It's a big crystals, prisms sticking out of the ground. Odd. And so he sees this one. This one's much larger. It's got more of them. And it's one of those good news, bad news situations. The good news is he can see that as one of them has grown against another, part of it has worn off and chipped. And there are several crystals, um, probably averaging from two to eight inches, shards on the ground. That's awesome. The downside is, is the tree line stops about four feet from the crystals. So there's nothing for him to hang from, or anything. If he jumps down there to get the crystals, he's going to have to touch the ground. The crystals are so smooth and they're so un, 
un unbreakable. He's afraid of trying to jump onto one of them himself. A, the edges do feel a bit sharp, and that is a concern. And B, if he just slides down it, it could be worse than just hopping down, right? It lands on another one and it stabs him or something. Plus, he doesn't know what these do. Right? Why does the captain even want these crystals? Didn't give him any information. He goes, I just want them. Bring me one back. He does have a little pouch on his belt to carry them in. He did bring an empty pouch for that because he knew he was going to be swimming. A little waterproof pouch. He could tie it off. But all he has is that, his necklace and his sword, his regular clothes. He doesn't have armor or anything like that on. Probably wearing his ring of protection. He does have one of those. It was given by his mom when he was younger. So, he would be wearing probably that. But not much of anything else. But you gotta imagine, he's probably got a little bit of worries in the back of his head during all this. Right? Deacon and Mugen are back on the ship with the pirate captain. What if he goes back out and that boat's not there? What if they kidnap Deacon and try to use him? You know, I mean, there's a lot of things that could go wrong here. There's a lot of trust they're putting in a pirate captain they've never met before. So... He's kind of calculating, saying, like, if I jump down and grab these crystals, grab one, and I just book it. These are several together. I may be able to grab more than one. If I book it, hit the ground, I run as fast as I can towards the beach. I was able to stay ahead of them, at least in the tree line. If I can hit the beach before them and I just push it as hard as I can, all I have to do is get to the water. And like I said, time is been moving while he's been jumping through these trees he's like because he's not sure he can climb the trees all the way back down to the shore even if he hopped on the ground grabs crystals and jumped up into the tree he could use that in a pinch but he's not going to make it back to the boat in time if he has to do the trees all the way back down because you remember i said seraph ran for a good one to two minutes through the trees before he jumped that little cliff and one to two minutes is a lot of land to, to cover for someone like seraph Trying to do that same thing tree to tree, if possible, would be very hard. So he calculates his best bet is to literally jump down, grab a crystal or two, and run. And hope he can make it. Worst case scenario, keeping an eye open for trees if he needs So that's what he decides to do. He times it for a moment. Sees what's going on. Measures. He sees exactly where he's going to land. He sees that there's a couple crystals next to each other, probably three or four of them. He's going to jump down, grab what he can. Quickly, he's got the open bag in his hand. Toss him in, tie it off, and run. Because um, he doesn't know where those golems left. He doesn't know how much time he's going to have. So he jumps. And sure enough, his feet hit the ground. He reaches down, grabs a handful of these crystals. He's probably got two or three of them or something. Toss them in the bag real quick. And like I said, some of them are short, some are longer. It's a little sack. Takes him in there real quick, which is still tied to his belt, cinches it, and starts to run. In the moment that he does that, he hears trees moving closer than he would have liked. And once again, he's off, now dashing towards what he believes is the direction of the ocean. The good news is every direction leads towards the ocean when you're on an island, but he's hoping it's the side he's shooting for. He can see the sky where the moon is, a little bit of navigation. Um, he knows, I mean, we would assume he knows the very basics of Merge World navigation. Now, I mentioned merged World's navigation. Um, and that's important because I've mentioned it in the past. The stars don't move in Merged World. 
The stars are not actually stars. Merge Worlds is a plane of existence. It's its own separate plane from the prime material plane. Suns, of which there are several, circle merged worlds in 24-hour cycles. Because one goes down, another one's still coming 24 hours in between. Even if you were from a world that didn't have 24 hours, you now do. You know, because not all worlds may be the same distance, right? So the suns literally go around merged worlds, and the stars stay in a fixed location. Suns and moons circle. Um, and so learning to travel by that, you can imagine, would be easy and hard, right? Um, because the stars being in one position, I may not quite see the stars you see from the same spot, merged worlds being as large as it is way up in Serenity, might look quite a bit different than they are down in Darktopia. So on the ocean, the, everyone who's an ocean-faring people has had to relearn how to navigate. And so it's, even though they've all been here 24, 25 years on merged worlds at this point, it's existed, they're still learning that. Right? There's still a lot to learn about merged worlds. So, he hits the ground, he starts running in what he believes is the right direction. And within just a couple of minutes, I mean, he's heard them immediately. Within a minute or two, he can hear that there's golems at least relatively close, but further behind than it was when he was on the way in. And they're coming from off more of the side end back than directly behind him. So he doesn't know if it's the same ones or different ones, but they seem to be coming from slightly further away. Now, he has to stop and gather himself for just a second. He can hear them moving in a distance, but he has to see. So he jumps up in a tree, and he waits a second. And sure enough, the second he's up in the tree, the noises stop. Climbs the tree up, starts looking around, looking at the sky. He's able to get a fix on his, on his location, and he realizes, okay, I'm going a little bit off course. I need to go back that way, but if I head that way, I should be good. I've got a clear line of sight if I go that way. That is slightly more angled to where the golems are coming from, so they may catch up a bit, but I've got to go that direction to where the ship should be. Because he recognizes, you know, like rocks in the water and such, where he came ashore, things like that. So he starts to climb down the tree, gets down to the bottom branch, and he's just about to bolt, and he hops down. And as he's about to run, he turns to the side, and looking just kind of through the trees, and he sees someone standing there. Ten or fifteen feet into the trees, a straight line, trees on your side, you can see it. Appears to be a woman. Not just any woman, but an elf. And this elven woman looks incredibly old. I mean, not that he's seen a lot of old elves, but for an elf to get old and wrinkly, you're talking in the several thousands at this point. But she looks like an ancient elf. She's and I mean not like the way she's dressed, she's just very old. And he sees her for just a second, and but before he can say anything, he immediately starts hearing the cracking and the sounds of the golems coming again. He wants to, you know, does this person need help? But the person's just looking at him, no expression on their face, just staring at him. And he doesn't have time to waste. He has to run. Because the golems are coming. So he has no choice, but he immediately starts running towards the beach. Now, the forest, again, seems to be coming alive. Now he's hearing it in several different locations, left and right. And it's definitely more than two, more than there were before. You can hear him coming from many places. He starts pushing himself, trying to go as hard as he possibly can. 
And up ahead, he sees salvation. He starts to hear the, the water hitting the shore. He can see the you know, edge of the trees, and he comes out of the tree line. He doesn't see any golems before him. And so he starts pushing, you know? At that point, that final exertion. He's already been pushing. He's already tired. He starts pushing himself to get to the water. He's about half of the way there, when suddenly, about that time, there's an explosion in the sand in front of him. Something large comes up out of the ground. Not doesn't have time to move, and you can imagine if you've ever tried to run on sand, it's not easy. Trying to stop himself, he's not successful, and he runs smack into what feels like a giant stone wall. Quickly stumbles backwards. Falls backwards onto the ground, but he's you know, kind of, you know, you're on the ground, you're scooting yourself to the side, and manages to roll to the left as a huge foot came crashing down where he was but a moment earlier. He rolls and comes up on his hands and feet, and he dodges to the side, almost a dive, just in time to miss this massive fist that comes down that, had he been under it, probably would have just crushed his skull. One of the golems is between him and the water. Again, he, he tries to get up from the dive and move, but then another that fist is coming down at him fast, and the only thing he can do is reach up and try to block it. And he catches the fist. Seraph is very strong. That multiple times today, many times in the Tagma Seraph, that he has strength. And in fact, so much so that Raven at this point thinks Seraph is stronger, even though he may not quite realize it yet. But as he's sitting there with two hands holding this fist, and for the record, the fist never seems to open its hand. It's always a fist. The fist is pushing down. He can feel it getting closer. Like he's pushing, but it's stronger. And it's just literally kind of like almost just pushing down, almost like in a punch. Squish him. And let me go over uh, Yes. And as this is pushing, he realizes he's not as strong as the golem. Like he's slowed it down. But the golem doesn't appear to be winded, tired. It's just pushing harder and harder and harder. And how long is it going to be before it starts swinging that other fist or a kick or more of them show up? He realizes he's not as strong as this golem. And in his heart, he feels like he's failed. Right? He knows he's got these crystals in his belt. But he's not going to be able... If he tries to get out from underneath this fist, he might escape. He might be able to. Or will it just crush him before he can move? I mean, these things are as fast, if not faster, than he is out here in the sand. And if he gets to the water, if he can even reach the water, right? So Seraph is feeling like he failed. You just start to feel that in, inside that, oh my God, this isn't going to work. I've let them all down. Both his friends who are back on this pirate ship, what's going to happen to them if he doesn't reach? His family, one always going to be wondering whatever happened to him. You know? And then worst of all, Dina. Dina's out there in danger. And in his mind, all he can do is picture her like in a field surrounded by Ormanian elites just getting closer and her screaming out for help. You know, And he's not there. He's not there to help her. Who's going to save her if, it, if, if he's not there to help keep her safe? And he gets angry that he's a failure. 
And that's one of those things that Seraph has dealt with his whole life, right? That having to hold back that, what if I hurt someone I care about? What if I don't do something and hurt someone I care about? He's torn in between kind of two thoughts there. I could hurt someone by trying, or I could hurt someone by not trying. What do I and in that moment, he just gets angry at the whole situation, and he just kind of starts to scream, and he's and he's, he realizes he's still not... This isn't a moment where he's super strong, and he's just suddenly going to be able to push that fist up. The fist is still coming down, but he's angry. And so he starts to squeeze harder, and he can feel his fingers kind of pushing in, like the crystal isn't completely glass-like. It's almost like it's compressing a little bit. And he decides instead to, to spin it. And he, he's holding it, and he starts trying to turn it. And he's pulling it hard, and the thing's trying to push him down. But if you ever try to push down, somebody starts turning your wrist, you're going to lose the strength on that. And he starts turning the wrist of the thing. And the other thing, it, it, it seems to start to lift its other fist up like it realizes there's what's happening. But Seraph twists it, and as he does, he hears a splintering sound around the elbow of this crystal. It starts to splinter and crack. And sure enough, after a moment, the hand cracks off. Well, as that hand cracks off, the other fist hits him clean in the side, and he just goes flying through the air. Probably a good eight to ten feet before he lands in the sand, and he knows at least one rib is cracked. Like, he, he can tell he's winded, he's having a hard time breathing, Probably bleeding a little from the mouth. You know, the classic bleeding from the nose and the mouth situation. And the thing stands up. And with one arm, it's just jagged here. There's a hand sitting on the ground. It starts making its way towards him. But it's not hurrying now. It's walking slow. And so he climbs up and sure enough, coughs. Blood comes out. Prepares for another assault. And then bolts for the water. And he runs for the water as quickly as he possibly can which is not easy in his current state. Uh, let me see here. Do, 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 do. Let me get catch up to where I'm in writing here. There we go. So, he's running and he hits the water. He feels it wash over him, right? But you can imagine the fear of that, right? Because the water's going to hit him and start pushing him backwards. That's how tides work. And so, he's fighting against the water, trying to get in deeper trying to swim with at least one cracked rib if among whatever else may have happened to him, right? And he's mostly swimming with his other hand because the rib side, he just doesn't have that full motion. He's almost like dog paddling out. But he gets a little bit out into the water and he turns and he looks and he can see that the goblin, or the goblin, golem is standing at the edge of the water, hand still missing, and there's another couple of them further back on the beach, one to the right, one to the left. And he's watching him as he's trying to, you know, swim away with this one hand, nurse holding his other side. And the golems shatter into crystals. And they fall and they hit the sand, and it's almost like they merge into the sand. They fall apart. Now, no one told him this would happen. No one's ever mentioned that the golems would burst apart. Normally, what he's heard, the golems, if you make it to the water, turn around and go back into the trees. But they burst into just tiny crystals and then they hit the sand and they kind of absorb inside of it. And as he's paddling out, he looks past that and he sees up in the trees 
same shape of a woman again. Silhouette of that old female elf. And this fades back into the trees and he loses sight of it. So he starts again pulling himself, trying to get back to this boat, hopefully before it leaves. Second, I'm a good drink. Ah, thank you. By the time the ship returns back to the captain's ship, right? He makes it back to the boat. It starts rowing quickly as it can to get out of there. By the time it makes it back to the ship, many of his wounds have already healed. Kind of how that works. Rib's still killing him. He knows that's not going to heal real quick. But he does have that quick healing. And he also wants to get back to the ship because with Deacon is a small glass uh, bottle that will help him heal a little faster. You all know what I'm talking about. That's the one he keeps blood in. Drinking blood will heal him. He's not going to bite one of these pirates. That's not how... But it would definitely help him if he can get back to the bottle and get some blood in him. He will heal a little faster. Quite a bit faster, depending. Probably one of the worst he's been beat up. Returns to the ship, and he's escorted back to the captain's quarters. Gets inside, he sees that Deacon and Mugen are already there. And there's a table with some cheese and bread and fruits on it. Looks like they've been eating a little bit. But they're very happy to see when he comes in. Seraph walks up to the captain's desk without saying anything, reaches into the pouch, and sets three crystals on the desk in front of him. Captain looks at him, squints eyes. He gets down, he takes one of the crystals, and he's looking at it. Can you imagine, is this, is this really real? He's kind of looking at it and, hmm, inspecting it. And he says, looks like I underestimated you, Bloodborne. Tell me, what happened? Seraph takes a seat, begins telling the story as I just told it to you. Although, for some reason, he omits the fact that he saw the elven lady. The reason he feels that's, that's not something he wants to share. Because, in his mind, did I even really see her? Why didn't the golems kill her? Am I imagining it? What is that? He doesn't bring her up. And the captain never asks anything about her. When the story is done, the captain seems pleased about what he was just told. Three crystals in front of them. Raging is one's probably four inches, eight inches. You know, they're just different lengths, different shards of crystal. But he looks pleased at what he's heard. And Deacon asks... What are these crystals? Why did you want them so bad? Captain picks one up and smiles and says, This? These are worthless. And he just tosses it to the side and it lands. They're actually just crystals. They're worthless. They mean nothing. Deacon and Mugen are shocked. Send him out to get these worthless crystals. Seraph immediately stands up and slams his fist down on the desk. 
Behind him, the two other pirates in the room reach for their weapons, and happens like it's all right. It's all right. Seraph is angry and yells at him. Wants to know why? Why did you send me out there? Were you trying to get me killed? Were you trying to kill me? Captain looks at him very casually. Captain does not seem worried by Seraph at all. We just heard Seraph took out these golems. I know how sore he is. But he's like, he does not seem concerned with Seraph at this moment. Not scared of him or anything. He says, no. No, I did not send you out there. Though it would have simplified. Tell Seraph to sit down. Take a seat. Sit down, take a seat. Seraph hesitates for a moment. Just stand there. And the captain just sits there staring at him, waiting. Finally, Seraph sits back down. Captain Wavestar says, I had to know. You succeeded where a hundred have failed. It was the most dangerous test that I could think of on short notice. And Mugen goes, why, why you test? Why you test him? Captain smiles and looks at him and goes, I had to know if he was strong enough. He was fast enough. Was he brave enough? And was he willing to do whatever was needed? Deacon, who, as you can imagine, is pissed for Seraph as well, needed for enough for what? Captain looks at them all one at a time and says, to protect her, to keep her safe, to truly be able to defend her from the darkness that seeks her this very minute. I had to know you're going to be able to do what you say you're trying to do. Seraph still stinging, still unhappy about the situation, doesn't like that his life was gambled for a test. Says, why do you care? What is she to you? And why have you involved yourself with the Oromanian resistance? Are they paying you that well? Captain leans in and says, because, my dear boy, I helped create them. Both Seraph and Deacon. Mugen just really not understanding exactly what's going on. He's following it somewhat, but Deacon and Seraph were confused, like, help create the Oromanian elite resistance? Captain begins to tell his tale. That I'd already seen my 400th year when I was captured by the Oromanian forces. Still relatively young for an elf, but I was experienced and I'd fought well. In an attempt to cleanse our old world, the previous emperor had made war against all races non-human. Convinced his people and his followers that the other races were just harbingers of evil that were out to get them. So war was made on the elves and the dwarves and the halflings. And humans, those are the four main primary races that were on the original Ormanian war, or world. I never talked a lot about the previous Ormanian world because there's not been a lot of reason to. This is an elf who's from the same world. After all, oh, let me see here. Uh, so yeah, to cleanse and made war against him. I was captured. And I was uh, taken to the primary city, the capital. And after all the merciless beatings and torture, they finally felt confident that I knew nothing else of interest, taking everything from me that they could. 
I assumed at that point I'd be put to death. Welcomed it. What he'd been through. But Oramon does not waste what it can use. I was allowed to heal. Helped, even. And there in the cap, I was in the cap capital, I was taken to the market where I was to be sold into slavery. And that's another uh, thing with Oramon that I've tried to show in the past that they don't like to waste. Darsh and Mercy were incredible threats. But they still put him in the arena, taining money off of him, so on and so forth. They could have just snuffed them out. The one thing that they very commonly will snuff out immediately are mages. Birds of Ormond do not like mages in their cities. So that's something they would very quickly want to uh, remove or kill, if you will. But anything else, if it's, there's a way to use it, they try. There were, he says, Captain, he looks at them. You know, they're listening to the story, and they're like, okay, you were captured by Ormond. Uh, there were many directions my life could have went that day in the slave market. Live elves were not common, I'd come to learn. Again, normal. The field of battle, elves aren't normally taken. It's not that he was a coward or anything of that nature. It just so happened one of those situations was captured. I could have been purchased by many different owners. Could have been sent to slave pens. Could have been sent to mines. Could have been sent to brothels. There's many different things they could have done with an elf. But luck was mine that day, if luck it can be called, because I was purchased by the lord of what is known as the Violet House. Now that lord was a fair man, saw that I was never mistreated. I was fed, warm, dry place to sleep, clean, given clothing. I was never abused there. It's like... I can't say, unlike many of the slaves I was to learn about throughout the cities, though I was never allowed to leave the actual um, uh, term I'm looking for. Estate. Never allowed to leave the estate. I was put to work in the gardens of that estate, caring for their flowers and plants. As an elf, they assumed I'd have a natural talent for it. Surprisingly, I did. Growing up as I did in the forest, I learned a lot of different plants and things of that nature. That's information that I had. I'd lived most of my life, the uh, first part of my life there, and the second half as a merchant. And then when the war attacked, I came back and uh, it was part of the elven military. The Lord was pleased with my work, and the gardens bloomed and you know, looked very, very nice and stuff. You can imagine someone like that, rich people, showing off their garden or guests come over and seeing how beautiful their garden is. That's a big deal, right? It's a way of rich people showing off to each other. The Lord's family also often spoke to me. His wife had passed away years before I'd ever come there. But his daughter Tiara and her little brother Valerian loved spending time in the gardens. The garden was previously their mother's project. So I had many chances to see the children grow over that. And several years went by. The children were probably mid-teens, early mid-teens by the time he got there. But after several years, they'd grown into young adults. Young Tiara had become a beautiful young woman. And it seemed the son of the emperor had grown fond of her. But she had rebuked all of his advances up to that point. 
Even then, Marcus was a beast of darkness, fervent, fervent to the church of Pandora, 100% loyal. He was not the kind of man who would be denied. Now, I don't care to admit at this point. I, too, had grown fond of the young woman myself, though never spoke of such. And I knew the life that I was in. Oh, and I was many, 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 many years her senior. And then came the very fateful day when the emperor died in battle, surprisingly enough, against my people. That was the day that Marcus became emperor of Oromon. Now, to his credit, my lord did everything he could. Tried to find a way to sneak his daughter out of the city, help her escape. But unfortunately, he was too late. And Marcus's men were sent to fetch her. Marcus's men stormed the Violet House, claimed Tiara had been chosen by the new emperor to be his bride. The Lord himself drew his weapons to defend his daughter and was cut down. I saw them then, two men, dragging Tiara from her chambers. She begged to be let go, and begged to be set free. But she was ignored. I admit I did not think, I reacted only. I grabbed a sword from the sheath of one of the soldiers' belts. I'd cut down several of them before they'd realized what had happened. I was, after all, still a soldier. I pulled Ciara down the hallway into a near room, a small room that was merely meant for storage, but it had just the one entrance. That exit I would defend, allow no one to enter. The men that tried to come through that doorway I cut down, and bodies began to pile before me. The Emperor's men were trained, but they didn't have the years of experience that I did. But finally it stopped, and no more men came near. I could see several of them down the hall, watching. There was nowhere for us to go either. The room had no window, and there was no place to escape. Finally, I saw Marcus himself coming down the hallway. He smiled as he drew his sword, and laughed as I tried to defend. Even then, he was an incredibly skilled and deadly fighter. Admit that I was outmatched. Only once did I bleed the man. A small cut crossed his side. But I could see that it angered him. Made him furious that one such as I would dare strike someone of his stature. It only took another moment before my sword hit the ground. He would have killed me then. Had it not been for her. She begged for the lives of her brother and her servants, and even mine. She gave herself up to save us. Marcus agreed. But spare everyone else, the, uh, the lands and such, of which he took much of, what was left, the estate itself, he would allow her brother to have rule over, because technically as the eldest son, this is Ormond, remember? Ormond, women have no rights, they got no anything. So it would have gone to her younger brother anyways. Estate he could keep. They did do some pillaging and take stuff out of it. 
She gave her lives to save us. The emperor took her away. But it seemed the emperor not quite done with me yet. For weeks, I spent life in a living hell, in his dungeon, tortured, beaten, burned. At that point, takes his hand and kind of shows the mark on the side of his head, the scarring from where literally it looks like a man was put on fire. Each time, healed back enough to be put through it again. And you'll remember that Tobias and Darsh and Mercy had been tortured for months and such, and a lot of that was blocked from their memory by Lomar when he was you know, casting his spells. Lomar of the Nine, one of the high... And that was years later, right? A few years later. So he'd, he'd learned by then. This is the early part where it was just more brutal and brunt, and this one was purely just for the sake of torture. Because again, he hated this elf because he dare raise sword against him and actually struck him. Because Marcus would view that, right? Marcus the Emperor, I'm chosen of Pandora, I'm the leader now, chosen by the gods, if you would, and he's always been that way, the head of the church, the destined one. This low elf managed to, to cut me, show me look mortal. He's not going to be happy with that. When he finally grew bored of it, I was sent to the new arena that had been being built for the last many years. And uh, to the arena to fight for, their for his entertainment. Even then, I didn't give up. I continued to fight to live. Fought for my survival. And for three years, I lived there each day. Every battle, every challenge. And then came the day I was approached by the new rebellion. Ormanian re rebels. I was approached by a member of them. Their group was small, new, and inexperienced. Yet they offered me a chance at freedom. And there was a tiny one, and they're probably going to fail. I couldn't pass up that opportunity. Sure enough, they helped me escape the arena. Hidden in wagons and taken from place to place. Eventually, put inside of a barrel of what was supposed to be mead traveling to a merchant ship, along with a bunch of other barrels. I was not the only one to escape that night. There were just a few of us. When we reached the dock, the other rebels that had escorted us and the other rebels in the barrels, we managed to break out in the, in the night and take a ship. And to take it over and flee into the night before it was too late. So he, he and these other rebels and the rebels, they managed to take over a ship, probably killing anybody that was on there whoever they were, good or bad or not, take off into the seas. Now, it was not until we were well at sea that I was told that it was Tiara herself who'd organized it all. That along with her brother, she's the one who'd started the, arena, uh, the, the rebellion. And they wouldn't have told them that till they got out of there, because again, if they got caught, right, they don't want to have given it up. That she's the one. They would have kept that hidden. The next two years, the rebels began to grow in size and in strength. I'd claimed two ships by that point from Oramon, from their navy, and pirated their waters using all the stolen weapons and goods that I could get a hold of to support the rebel. So he became a pirate in Oramon, mostly to bedevil Oramon and take their supplies and such. Could you imagine they're still attacking his people and other races? That, that hurts them from being able to do that. 
take the supplies provided to the rebellion, helps the rebellion fight back against him. Not going to like that. So he's just helping in multiple different ways there, not to mention just besieging merchants and getting just basically ill will from the other countries that Ormond traded with at that point. Because back on that world, they did. Okay. Um, but da -da -da. Here we go. On, it was one night, on a night, just like this. I'm just kidding. I, I always want to say that. On a night, just like this. So one night, we were inside a cove, a hidden cove, a place that we used to unload supplies and things that we'd stolen and provide to the rebellion. Unloading the ship and such, when I was approached by one of the relative leaders of the rebellion. And his name... Oh, no, sorry. It was on... I'm sorry, I skipped the part. He's in that cove unloading the stuff when the merge hit. The merge hit, our world was changed forever. So his ship was on the shores of Oromon when that chunk of Oromon came through. So he and one of his ships and crew managed to make it through. He'd lost his other ship, it never came through. So he's got one ship here. Now he's got all these waters and such he has no familiarity with. He can't travel by the stars anymore. You can imagine it's going to take a little while to rebuild that. But his mission still became, is still the same, right? He still wants to fight Ormon. It may take a little bit, but information is finally going to get back to him. Yeah, this is what's happened. This is what's merged worlds. Everybody's learning about it. Huge chunk of Ormon is there. He hears the Emperor and Tiara still alive, ruling the place. His mission's not changed. Now he just has to trouble other waters. That became a bit of an issue because he had to cut, start messing with other races to get supplies. Ormon lost a large amount of their navy, which was a great boon to the rebellion. But now he had to get other stuff. He had to start taking it from where he could. He bought where he could, but he was a pirate at heart at that point. That's what he was doing. So he started having to dabble with other, uh, other races' ships and things. And that's why he's such a known pirate in Merge now. He's, he's one of the He's the pirate system. There's lots of pirates, of course, under their own sail, but he's known as like a pirate lord. He's got multiple ships. Then came a day when he was approached. This is the part I skipped, almost skipped to by accident. Then came the day when he was approached by Kurgan the Grey, one of the rebel leaders. It turns out Tiara had given birth to a daughter, and fearing for the child, they planned to escape her out of the city. I, of course, beg that they bring Tiara as well. Bring Tiara out. Let's protect her and let's help her escape. Ergen's like, I would in a heartbeat if she'd come. That's her people. She's leading this rebellion. She's not willing to, to leave until her people are free. But she fears for her daughter's life. I agreed to help. I knew little of what the plan was. My part was one was, was all I knew. And so I, my ship, made port, hidden, of course, pretending to be merchants, in the port of Paxawal. And we waited. Finally, a ship arrived from the west. In that ship was Perrin, another servant who used to serve in Violet House, and the child. That ship belonged to Darsh Fohammer. That is a debt I still owe that man. And because of that, he has tried to minimize affecting Darsh. Does not attack Darsh's ships. 
Azumi doesn't mess with their partners or so on and so forth, and still bedevil Darsh, but he's never openly attacked Darsh or Darshtopia. He considers that a debt. That's how he's paying it, by never, you know, messing with Darsh directly if he can help it. We took Perrin and Chiara to Arjuel, where they were taken north to the kingdom of Firemoon. From that day forward, I awaited my place in the chain, waited for the sign telling me that, she, that she'd been discovered and that we needed to escape her to the east. That day recently came to pass. That's his history. That's, that's kind of how he became a part of that. He started, I mean, he still helps them out. He's still a pirate lord. But he still helps the rebellion as much as he could. And he's waited for the day that he was needed. He had a ship prepared for that type of thing, and he knew where to take her. He does continue, and they'll say, I'll always regret that I could not save Tiara. That I was not there to protect her from that monster the day that he took her life. I will, but I'll tell you that the word of her death nearly broke me. Almost too much. Everything we'd fought for, everything happened, the only reason I was alive was because of her. All that I have in the life I lead now, none of that but her saving me. Yet, I took solace that once again, Mercy Harriton rose against him, along with Darsh, your mother, he's talking to Seraph, and their friends. They finally took that beast's life, ended him in this. Yet another debt I have. I will not fail to protect Dina as I did her mother. So yes, I had to test you to know if you truly would and could protect her. So he feels that he's failed PR at this point. It's probably assumed, you know, you could probably safely assume that he had always hoped that one day he could get in there and escape her. Maybe not for himself or because he loved, but just because of everything she's done. She's a figurehead. She's helped so many people. She started this whole thing. He'd always hope that one day that either they'd defeat him, she'd be free, or they could get her out of it. So when word kind of, you know, by the time word got to him that she'd been dead, it's probably been weeks, right? And that, that was hard for him to take. So now he's got Dina. He's like, I'm not going to fail her like I failed her mom. Make sure she's safe, and I'm not going to let anybody mess with that. So he said, yes, you had to be tested. The room's silent for a moment while everybody finishes taking in everything that he's said. And what have you concluded? Asks Seraph. But there may not be any better man to do so. You are the person that she loves. I would hope for nothing but her to have the happiness that her mother was denied. Clearly capable protecting her. You won't be able to do it alone. Rebellion will always be there. But yes, I will take you to the next link of the chain, even though I myself don't know where she went from there. I will take you as far as I can. Stairs stands up and the two men shake hands. There's an understanding there at this point. Captain says to one of the other pirates in the room, go to the navigator, turn the ship, make our way to Sharptooth Harbor. 
Sheriff, and Deacon have never heard of Shark Tooth Harvest. Don't know where that is, but they're about to be traveling towards lands that not many people in their section of the world has heard of. So they're going to have to find out where that is. Seraph and his friends returned. He needs to rest, and he wants to get to his blood bottle. If you don't mind, I'm going to go rest a bit, and we'll see you in the morning. It's still nighttime, probably early morning. Deacon and Mugen and Seraph are led by the other pirate out of the room. The door closes, and he hears it shut. Now he's alone in there, right? Because one pilot went on to tell where the ship goes. One pirate did. The other pirate went to take them out. The door is barely shut. Where he quickly jumps out of his chair and reaches down to the floor and grabs the crystal that he'd thrown there and gently picks it up and sets it on the desk next to the other two. Wipes his brow. He's clearly sweating. He goes over to his bed using a secret knob thing. He opens up a hidden compartment in the base of it because the bed's, you can't go under the bed. It's built into the thing. And he pulls out a small wooden chest. Probably foot and a half by foot and a half with about maybe five, six inches high. So a small box. Takes a key, unlocks it, and opens it. Inside of this box, there are it's, it's kind of cut into squares, right? Cross shapes, so there's four little sections. He gently picks up the crystals and sets them in one of the sections. Section to the left of it. There are two crystals, blue, look almost, but look of the same make, same kind of crystals. These ones are a navy blue, just as reflective and shiny and smooth as the other one. Carefully closes the lid, locks it again, putting it back where it is. Sits back in his chair, smiles. Now, about that time, Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen enter into the room that they've been given, that they've been sharing for this time period, and that they'll probably be sharing for the next while. The pirate's like, yeah, where we're going, it's going to take probably a couple weeks to get there. It's a long voyage. And the pirate, like, we got supplies to handle it. He's made sure we're well supplied, but, uh, yeah, we didn't know we were going there. But, yeah, we know where it is. Okay. So they go into their room, close the door behind them. <clears throat> Sarah sits down, talks to Deegan and Mugen, begins to tell them the rest of the tale, part about the old elf woman and such, things that he'd left out with the captain. Deacon's like, interesting. She said nothing, nothing at all. Face gave away no expression. I saw no movement other than her just kind of fading back into the trees. She looked old. I've never seen an elf look old before. Like, well, how was she dressed? Because uh, she was wearing a robe of some, it was like a gray, grayish robe, but there was no symbols that I could see on it. it seemed a very simple robe. He goes, but I wouldn't call it clerical or even mage robe, kind of robe that a common person would wear. Michael asks a question. Does the Kender ship ever show up again in the storyline? Oh, yeah, the Cyclone? Cyclone's out there. <laughs> yes, the Kender ship is known as the Cyclone. Yes, I can guarantee we have not seen the last of that. Lots of cool stuff in this section of the world that I have seeded into the storyline a long time ago. 
so that I could use it when we get to this point. Um, so yes, so the Kendership, the Cyclone, is something we will see again, I can tell. So, great question. <laughs> I always like it when people remember that stuff. You know, it's, some of you folks uh, have listened to this story from the very beginning, and I appreciate that. Some of you folks have listened to it more than once from the beginning, and that's just mind-boggling to me, because I have talked a lot across this 76 episodes of Merged Worlds, right? That's a lot of hours of stuff, so the fact that you guys can remember little details and stuff like that is just always flattering and awesome. So thank you all. I appreciate it. Um, but he's telling, he's telling them, he tells the story, and like, okay, well, yeah, she didn't look like a mage or clerical or anything like that. Didn't really look like a druid, just looked like common robes, but she, I, I didn't see weapons or anything. Granted, I only got to see her for a minute. She didn't have a hood up. She had very white hair, but white or gray from age, not like white hair like he had. Deacon's like, ah, oh, interesting. Mugen's like, ah, interesting. Mugen doesn't understand what's going on, but he tries to do what they do because he wants to fit in. And Seraph reaches into his pocket and pulls out three-inch-long red crystal. Hands it to Deacon. Keep that hidden, but see what you can figure out about it. Not sure I trust this pirate. These crystals are quite as useless as he thinks. Besides, Uncle Darsh might, might want to know more about that. If nothing else, maybe one day we can get that into his hands. Deacon agrees, goes, oh, yes, definitely. I'll see what I can do. Tucks it into his own stuff. So Seraph kept one of the crystals. Said he grabbed a handful. Deacon now has, has that in his hand. But what it does, or why the captain might like to have it, well, so maybe we'll find out one day. Oh, Jim says, multiple times up to about episode 20 or so. Keep up with the new story and can't go back now. <laughs> gotcha. I had someone just tell me the other day that they uh, just went through it a second time because they'd fallen off at around episode 50 or 55. This is some personal stuff. They wanted to make sure they missed anything, so they went back through it all to, before they kept up with the new stuff. And I'm like, I don't even know if I could do that. <laughs> and so, Seraph and Mugen, along with his captain's uh, Wayfarer's ship, are heading east towards a place called Sharptooth Harbor. And it's going to take a while to get there. Now, Artis, Maeve, Ran, and Petal begin or are approaching the city of Arduel. Let me grab their stuff here. Got to make sure I got the right page here. I'm going to be messing up on my stuff. There we go. So they, along with their new bard friend, arrive at the city of Arduel. It's about midday when they arrive. And they're not sure exactly what, you know, they've been planning, of course. Once they reach here, they have to start looking around for Seraph and Deacon and Mugen and Dina, right? That's why they came here. They're trying to catch up to their friends. It's taken them a while to get here, but they finally arrived, right? So they have some ideas of what they're going to do as well, right? So they're like, okay, here's what I'm thinking. 
Petal's going to go to the Mage Tower, right? Because Deacon's a Mage. Maybe he went there. Not a bad idea. We're also going to check the Harbor, ask it ends. All the same stuff that um, Deacon and Seraph did, right? It's going to be all the same stuff. So uh, it's important to them that you know, they're trying to do the same thing because that's what they would do, right? Kip, who's their... Remember, Kip is the name of the uh, bard. Says he's been here a few times. He knows some of the other, you know, permanent bards that live around here that he doesn't care to reach out and see if anyone he knows. By this point, he's been told much of their story. Um, he's learned Sarah, why Seraph's out here. Dina, they probably, you know, they haven't talked about Oromon at all because why? But they're keeping it mostly close to the belt. But they're telling him the basic story. Our friends gone off to save the lady, and we're after them to try to help so bring them all home and make sure they're safe. Kip is like, two things. Kip's like, well, that's an honorable thing to do. I said, you're out to help friends. I'm happy to help any way I can. And number two, this would make an awesome ballad. And you can picture him just with his little musical instruments, right? Because um, that's what he is, right? This would be, what an amazing tale. I've already written three songs. Just of the parts that I know. So he's, you know, he's like, I would love to help. I need to find out what's going to happen with this story. And so he, uh, he's like, yeah, I'll help. I'll ask around the city and see what I can find out. And um, Artis is going to make her way to see King Christopher's castle. And by this point, King Christopher might be home. They don't know. Remember, he was going to portal and come over from Paxawal. He might be back already. He might not. They're going to head there to find out. Maeve's going to go with him. Petal's going to go to the... I'm oh, sorry. Ran is going to go with him. Or with her, with her. Maeve and Petal are going to go to the Mage Tower. And um, Kip is going to just see what he can find out from his local sources. After they've done those two things, everybody's going to meet up at the temple. Because again, Maeve and Artist, being clerics, have that access as well. Maybe they stop by the temple for some reason, though none of them are clerics. Reaching the castle, Christopher is not back home yet. Uh, so they, there's not, they can't really speak to him directly. Several of the people there know artists, though. I mean, they would have known who she is and who she represents. And so they're like, what can we help with? They're like, well, we're looking for Seraph and so on and so forth. Um, you know, has he been by? Do you know, he's looking for somebody. And they're like, no, we've not seen anyone that matches that description. But if you'd like, we can send word out to see. And they're like, well, if you do, can you keep it on the kind of the down low? Because, you know, there might be some negative folks we would rather not know that he's here. We're searching for him. Yeah, we can. We can. Michael says it would be nice to know the episode number where each of the major storylines start. That's an interesting question. I'm going to interrupt my story for just a second. So I would love to get some feedback from you guys, the listeners. Um, on iTunes and Spotify, I have always listed this. I always have to put a season. And this is all listed as season one. I thought about going back and breaking it up into seasons. I could still be episode 20, but it'd be season two now kind of thing, you know? Season 2, episode 20. It's not like I'd start the numbers all over again, but I could break him up into seasons so that major storylines kind of match that way. I mean, at this point right now, we'd be on like season 9, right? Because the first season would really be the first episode. 
I, I would probably count because that's just the tale of the Fire Moon Brothers. But I'd probably put that together with um, the very beginning, where Mercy and the friends are going after looking for the weapons. When they die at the when the when the Citadel crashes, when they're fighting Nylat, technically they die. That would be the end of the, what I call the first season. The second season would be them searching for the the crystals, right? To get the weapons back, all the uh, Vasani stones. That would end when they get to the monk temple, when they finally get the weapons back and they lose the stones. That would be the end of season two. Season three would be them going up to Serenity and dealing with all the Serenity stuff, and Michael coming back and dealing with everything up there. And then finally figuring out what they need to do to go and take out uh, Ilat. So that one would be a short season three, right? And then we've got all the stuff that dealing with in um, season four would be after that. Like I got broken into stories in my mind. Like there's the whole Artemis going to help Draven on his quest and Mercy and, and Darsh going to Ormond. That would all be a season. They come back home. Then the next season after that would be where Michael gets trapped inside Menandra and they have to go on that big quest to save him going through the sands. They lose Tobias at the end. You know what I mean? It's like all of that kind of thing. Um, that's kind of how I would, in my mind, kind of how I broke up the storylines because they're it's all one major campaign, but it is broken into individual adventures. But anyways, I thought I'd ask if you're listening to this whenever, if that's something you'd like, a list of which which episodes go in a season or if I should go back and I can renumber them on the, on iTunes and Spotify. So they're broken that way. If that would help people and you'd like to see them broken into seasons, let me know or uh, post in our discord channel, or any of that stuff. Discord can be found in the description of these streams. Or if you're on iTunes and Spotify, you can go to my website, only draven.com. The button at the top of the homepage, take you right in there. There's a merge world, merge worlds threads in there. We'd love to hear your thoughts as well. So uh, give me a shout. Let me know what you think about that. And uh, I might be able to work something out like that. If nothing else, I can get a master list that I could post on the website for folks who'd like to know. If the season thing's too much. That at least would break things up a little bit. So, anyways. Good question, Michael. Thank you. I'll uh, mean to ask about that for a while. So, they arrive. They arrive so, they're doing their search of, of Arduel. There's, they got people at the castle are going to be helped. Send out word. And anybody seen anyone matching Seraph and Deacon and Mugen's look? Because let's be honest, they are going to stand out like sore thumbs, right? Deacon probably blend in perfectly fine in regular clothing. But Mugen and Seraph are not going to be easy to hide. That'd be cool. Separate playlists on YouTube. Don't need to. Right. That's it. Well, yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. So if I did that, I could put yeah something season one, season two. I could definitely do that. So, it's going to be hard to hide them. So, they start looking out. Petal and Maeve have a little bit more success. So, when they arrive at the Mage Tower, in fact, Petal's able to arrive, and she's there with Maeve, who's, you know, ginormous, right? <laughs> As they enter in, and they're, they're, uh, they're taken in to speak with one of the... Uh, one of the mages, not probably the head mages, but a mage of import, says, hi, we're, you know, I'm so-and-so, we're from Serenity. And the, uh, the mage is going to be like, oh, yes, well, please come in, have a seat. What can we do to help you? Well, 
actually looking for a friend of mine, a fellow student at the Tower of Serenity. Uh, his name is Deacon Firemoon. The Firemoon. He hasn't stopped by here by any chance, has he? And the mage goes, funny you should ask. Yes, he did. He did come by here. He was looking for a young woman. Uh, said he and his friends were trying to help a young woman out, wanted to know if there was anything we'd do to help find her. Unfortunately, we weren't really able to assist him, but he did stop by, yes. They even peddled like, sweet, this is a sign, excellent. We've, uh, when was this? And they're like, oh, probably about 17 days ago, 15 days ago, something like that, a little over two weeks. And they're like, oh, we're that far behind. Because that's what I want you guys to be aware of. The stuff that's happened with Seraph and them before where we are right now, right? They are a bit behind. You're like, oh, did they say where they were going or anything? I said, no, we just came here asking to see if anything of that nature. Um, did say something about going down to the docks, um, checking on ships, but that was the only thing I remember specifically. Small conversation, things go on there. They don't really learn anything beyond that. So, okay, well, that makes sense. We'll go down to the docks. Thank you very much for your help way out. And I'm like, okay, well, let's head to the temple. We're supposed to meet everybody there. Then we'll go with them down to the docks and check that out. They make their way to the temple. So when they get there, Artis is already there. Artis was at the keep very quickly. Her and Rand made their way to the temple. They're already starting to chat. Oh, I'm two minutes behind live, but I vote for season. <laughs> no problem, MT. I appreciate the feedback. I can do that. Thank you. <laughs> I'll have to go back and figure out where they are. <laughs> but, um, so, uh, I, you made me read things else. So, in the description of all my episodes, it always starts the same way, where it's just the overall story that kind of leans on the fire moon. I would probably change that a little bit for each season, so that the every episode in a season would have the same intro kind of thing describing the basics of that season. Kingdom of Serenity is at war, or something like that. Just a, a brief overview of how that season starts. Yeah, sorry. Had me, you had me thinking now. You had me thinking. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I may work on that on my next day off and see what I can figure out. Um, so, um, they make their way to the temple. Artis has already been there a little while. So Maeve and Peddler are led into a small chamber where they're sitting with um, Brother Harith. Brother Harith is one of the mages that's there. Or one of the clerics that's there again. Not a head cleric, right? But a cleric of note. He's probably, you know, middle management, I guess you could say, at that point. And, uh, of course, he's... See, Artis, who's a cleric, and the Princess of Serenity, that's a big sauce, right? That's big news. That's not only just a cleric, but a cleric of... A royal cleric. That's important. Because you can imagine, they know of Artemis. Artemis is taught here. He's come through here years past been through here several times since. Anytime they come to Arduel, she swings by. So they know who Artemis is. And they know her friends and so on. I'm sure they know about the Temple in Serenity, which at this point rivals the Temple of Paxiwal, as, as famous, if not more so. Um, so to have this visitor is pretty important. Now Maeve comes walking in. Maeve, who's a paladin and a female minotaur. Not a combination anyone has ever seen here before. Even though Arduel probably sees more minotaurs than anyone else, right? Because they're the closest to Darsh and relatively close. They're, they were trading with Kronayar before Paxiwal was. 
So Arduel has always been uh, a little bit closer to the, to the Minotaurs. But they've never seen a Minotaur paladin, let alone a female, walking in. So that's, got to, that's, that's impressive, right? So they're going to want to hear some of their story. And, 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 and Maeve and Peddle are going to say, yeah, the Deacon was seen at the docks. Or was seen uh, at the Mage Tower saying they were going to the docks. So they've got a clue. They at least know they made it. And that's the first sign of relief for them. They're like, okay, they made it to Arduel. They could still be here. Although they're a little disheartened to hear that it was, you know, two, over two weeks ago. Sorry, I got a mustache hair tickling my nose. I, uh, over two weeks ago. But they made it to RUL, so that's good. They didn't pass them. They didn't find Dina and head home, hopefully. I guess there's still a chance that could happen. But at least they made it here safe. That's a good sign. They're on the right path. The clerics say, no, no I've, you know, he asked, he sent somebody to ask around. But he's like, no, no, they never came here at all. Um, but we're happy to help any way we can. Oh, we appreciate that. If, if, if any of them come by matching that, would you uh, let them know we're going to be staying at a certain inn? And by this point, when they first come to the town, they would have found an inn and said, here's our base of operations kind of thing. They found an inn. We're going to go stay at that inn. Can you please send a message there? Like, I would be happy to, of course. Anything we can do to help you out, Prince. So at this point, they head down to the docks. Now, they're still supposed to meet up with Kip, but Kip said he'd meet them back at the end. He wasn't going to be meeting them at the... And he, he said he'd try, but if not, he'd meet them at the end because he's going to be asking around town, reaching out to people and see what he can find out. They get down to the docks and they start searching. And they start asking around. And sure enough, occasionally they come across someone's like, yeah, I saw a pale guy with long white hair asking about... Some girl, yeah, it was a couple of weeks ago, so on and so forth. You can imagine, you know, they were quite open about the fact that they were searching for Dina. They would ask all over the place. So coming across dock workers who saw that, or maybe they go into a bar or an inn or something and ask around. They're like, yeah, they were in here. They came here a couple of days. We're drinking, looking for a girl. Imagine that these guys are having much easier luck getting information about Seraph and Deacon and Mugen, then Seraph Deacon Mugen had about Dina, right? Because she was smuggled through for all intents and purposes. But even though they get all this information, they keep people, lots of people see them, no one knows where they are. Say, so, well, we haven't seen them in a while. That was a couple weeks ago. Someone matching that description came around. Saw them around for a few days and then never came around anymore. What does that mean? Where did they go? Right? Are they still in the city? Maybe searching somewhere else? Are they in trouble? Did they leave? So where did they go? Did they go by land to Santriel? Did they go by boat to around Santriel and Cronair? Or not Cronair, uh, Coromin? That's a, lot of, that's a lot of different options. Without much success, they head on back to the inn. So they go to the inn of the Golden Guppy. Yes, I just came up with that name. They go, they go back to the Inn of the Golden Guppy, which is a, a fair quality inn, not with the fanciest one in town, but also not a rat hole, right? It's relatively clean. These people are of relative station. They're used to a relative amount of cleanliness. They're not going to stay in a dive if they can help it. Uh, plus, at the same time, when Maeve and artists walk into a place, you're not going to give artists the nasty rooms. You know what I'm talking about? You do not want to anger a god, Right? Clerics, clerics get that special treatment, you know, and they're not looking for above and beyond. They're like, I want what I'm paying for. Regular person shows up with a coin, says, "Yeah, here's two gold. I need a room." 
They put him in a bunk room with nasty people. Artist shows up. Here's two gold. I need a room. We have a nice one right here. You know, maybe they charge a little more normally, but in their mind, hey, I'm doing this for the cleric. That puts me in good with the church. Maybe they'll say, you know, other clerics will come here because they hear the service is good. People do that with clerics and mages or people of note, right? So if a, a big merchant or let's say King Firemoon comes through here for some reason and stays and you can make a good impression on him. Maybe he'll send more of his people through. That's kind of what Deacon uh, was playing on back at the, the town when they were dealing with the bully, right? My father's men will come through here and bring business to the town on their way through. That's what towns and what businesses want. So clerics, same situation. And you don't want to anger the gods. You don't jip a god. <laughs> you can help it. So they get themselves a room and they're kind of hanging out. And a little bit later in the evening, Kip shows up and he comes in and people are like, oh, waving and such. Not because they know him, but because he's clearly a bard. He's got an instrument he carries around all the time. And he comes in and uh, shows up and he sits down and he's like, orders a drink and food for himself. And one thing about Kip is Kip is always in a very good mood. They find him to be very uh, positive. Even the crap that he went through at that last town, he got over it very quick. And he's like, well, ah, he's not, he's quick to sing a song or whatever. He's always the one telling a story and a tale. So as they traveled, he definitely kept them entertained. Uh, you can imagine the miles that they had to travel on horseback. That was a, a pleasant thing to have. And so they all come to really like him. He's just a very friendly, nice person. Um, they don't know how well he'd be good in a battle because <laughs> he doesn't really carry, he's got a sword, but it's a rapier, right? He doesn't carry around a lot of weapons on him. He's more of a musician. But in the back of their mind, they're like, well, you know, he still could be useful, especially since he knows people in RDL. And luck would have it, he has some information for them. So he sits down, orders a drink, some food for himself. Um, pop down, he starts eating and drinking while talking. He's talking with his mouth full, and he's just telling the story and waving a chicken wing while he's doing it. Seems he reached out to a, a bard that was working at a different inn down the road uh, several weeks past. And it seems Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen, who, again, stick out like a sore thumb, spent a couple nights at that inn. There for, for a few nights. He saw them in the crowd. People were singing and dancing, and there's a young woman who sings it there, and she does a real good at that. So, um, you know, friendly people. And they, they, they say, yeah, I saw them. The little guy with the weird hair. The gully dwarf with the weird hair and all the all the tattoos. And then the tall elf-looking guy with long white hair. Because very often, Seraph would... If you had to put Seraph in a lineup, most people would pick him to be a pale elf than they would a pale human. He definitely has elven features. Um, whereas Draven has a bit more of a human feature. He's a bit wider in the shoulder and of that nature. Um... Seraph just has a bit more elven features from his mom. So, yeah, we all rec they recognized him. He stayed there a few days and then just out of nowhere disappeared one night. They paid their tab. The next morning, the barkeep had gone up to, you know, see if they needed anything or if they were checking out and the room was empty. They'd already left with all their stuff. Left no damage and all their tabs were paid. So, you know, they didn't have any real concerns about it. But the bard, you know, he said, yeah, the innkeep mentioned it. It was kind of an odd thing that the weirdos that were staying in room 3B just disappeared in the middle of the night one night. Nobody saw them come downstairs. They were just gone. So you can imagine how people were like this. And they just magic themselves out of there. Petal's thinking they're like, listen, 
There's no way he knows how to teleport yet. That is well beyond anything Deacon and I can do. Artist is like, I agree. That's a pretty powerful spell. All right, well, then if they didn't do that, they had to get out another way. So they find out where that inn is, and they, they take their stuff to their rooms, and they get and then they go back out. And it's, it's late at this point. They're like, well, let's see if we can go find where that inn is. And they make their way, and they, find, they go to that inn, because Kip would have found the name of it, right, from the other bard. And they get there, and they, they go inside. And they decide to order a drink. Sit down and have a drink. It's later in the evening, it's dark, but it's still, you know, 7 or 8 o'clock at night. Still boisterous and music playing and such. And uh, Kip comes in and sees the other bard that he was talking to earlier. And he's like, I'm going to go hang out with the bard for a minute, see if anything else, they can think of anything else. So he goes up there, and he's maybe joins in in a song or two, and the audience is laughing because these two are singing the same song together, and maybe it's a funny ballad or whatever. Um, well, the other four sitting there having drinks and asking, hey, some friends of ours came through here a few weeks ago. And the uh, barmaid is, you know, here's the description. She's like, yeah, the ones that mysteriously disappeared out of room 3B. Yeah, just they were gone one night. And they're like, did you? Did they say anything to you at all or anything, you know, but where they were going next? And she goes, no, no, they tipped well, always paid, were very friendly and nice, very proper, very proper young men. And that one little guy looked wild, but uh, still, he everybody was very proper and nice. Just one night they were gone. And so they asked, well, which, 3B, where is that room? Is it empty? And they're like, oh, no, there's someone in it now. And they're like, oh, got that. Uh, whereabouts is it? And they said, oh, it's up the hill, up the stairs and to the left there. They make a mental note of where that is. A little bit later, Kit comes back over, probably has... Uh, he's probably counting some coins he made from his hat while he was singing some songs there. Performed a little bit. He's like, ha ha ha. He orders himself another drink. And they decide to go outside. And they go outside and they go around the building. And they're like, okay, so that room would have been around this corner. And Ran and Petal and Kip are kind of standing at the door or the edge of the building while Artisan may have go into the darker alley to see what's going on. Ran Again, very protective of artists. But usually okay with her doing stuff when Maeve is next to her, right? Because Ryan would probably lose a fight with Maeve. At this point, at the level that they're at, Maeve would probably wipe the floor with Ryan. Um, in just a straight-up fist fight or melee fight or armed fight. He's fast. He could probably get away from her. That's probably his biggest point. And he's a good warrior, but... Her armor is way better than his. Her weapon is huge. One hit with her sword could cleave him. So Maeve just has that extra strength and stuff that she is by far the strongest fighter in the group. The same issue I had when I was DMing her father, right? Because Darsh was always way stronger than everyone else. So being able to provide a challenge for everyone, difficult as a DM. Um, but when Maeve is walking with artists, Rand's usually okay with it. Doesn't try to follow along. So artists and Maeve go around the alley. They don't really run into anybody. Maybe a couple of homeless people are stinky sitting next to a dumpster or something. <laughs> but uh, they come to the room and they try to figure out, and they figure out where the room is. And they're looking and they're like, Seraph could climb down this wall. Maeve's like, I agree 100%. Yeah, that's it's only two stories high. He could probably just hop right out. And, I mean, you know how strong the, the man is. He could easily probably have caught Deacon and if, if he jumped which isn't exactly what happened, but, you know, feasibly. And Mugen's 
a little dude, so I'm sure he could he could lift. I could lift him, so I'm sure he could. Yeah, they probably came out the window. All right, well, where would they have gone? And they make their way back out to Kip, Ran, and Pedal. Like, well, we think they came out the window. They must have escaped that way. Oh, but where could they have gone? The city's huge. Pedal's like, well, let me see if I can maybe cast a spell. Let's go down there and see what's going on. So they all go back down the alleyway at this point. And then Petal just squeals, startling all of them. And you can imagine that, right? Just Petal squeals. And so Rand's blades out. Artis's weapon's out. Made like, it's almost like they all, they all did the Charlie's Angels posters. Like, phew, everybody's all standing there with Petal in the middle because she's the squishy. Right? Rand, Maeve, Artis, weapons in hand. Kip, guitar in hand. Like, what are we doing? What's happening? I don't understand. What is it? Artis says. Look, look. And she's pointing. Like, look at what? She's like, oh, I always forget that. Hold on. And she starts casting a spell. And sure enough, more glyphs and symbols appear on the wall. And all it says is, she says, it's, it's one of those messages from Deacon. Deacon left the message here on the wall. All it says is, going east, Dina went, or Dina went east, following after her by ship. All it said. So Deacon would have had to write this after they were hanging out with the rebellion, but before they left to go find the pirate captain. Because they didn't all they knew was they were going to go to the pirate captain and try and they were getting on that boat. They did not come back to Arduel once they reached the pirate captain, Wave Strider. So Wave Strider, he, they would have had to say, Hey, we're going east by ship. That's their assumption. We're gonna get the information from the pirate captain and follow Dina. Didn't know about the test and all that other stuff. But he left a message, relatively hidden in an alley where just nobody would just normally stumble across it. You'd have to be looking. And Pedal reads out the message, and they're all pretty excited by that. They're like, we, we know where they're going. They're going by ship, and they left two weeks ago from the sound of it. I don't know why they would have climbed out the window, but we have a clue. We need to find a way to go east. We're going to need a ship. So they go back to their rooms, again, it's later at night. And they're resting, get their sleep, you know, read, read spells, memorize, whatever. All the, all the stuff you do when you're taking your eight-hour rest for D&D, right? The next morning, they get up nice and early and make their way down to the docks. And be looking to book passage. And they're kind of standing near, like, you got to imagine that the way the docks laid out, there's multiple docks that come off from the shore, right? With ships parked all in them. You know, of different sizes and such. And the docks go a long ways. They go and then they curve because the, the, the shore is very moon-like, like a quarter moon-like, like a big old tripped-off fingernail. And so the docks come out and curve around it. They have one of the largest uh, and oldest dock systems, right? Paxiwal has a big one now too, but they didn't have ships originally. Paxiwal was normally landlocked before Merge Worlds, but it's been 25 years. They've had time. Arduel already had one, and theirs only got bigger. And with Corman and Darsh and now Santriel popping up, their docks are smack dab in the middle of everybody else's city. So it's grown horrendously. So there's tons of ships. There are going to be basically an office where people have to come in and do their pay, pay to park there, whatever the case is, uh, 
Make sure they're not transporting goods. There's going to be people who walk the docks taking the payment. If you've ever watched a movie with pirates or ships, somebody, they take a payment to, to park there. Somebody slides them a coin. They did it in Pirates of the Caribbean, all that kind of stuff. They walk up there and then that money goes back to whoever's in charge of the docks, the dock master. So they go to the office of the dock master. And they're like, hey, we're looking for a ship. Well, we're looking for three guys that left on a ship. They begin to describe them to the whoever's working the office. Long white hair, little short guy, crazy hair, tattoos all over his body, doesn't really wear a shirt. Does any of this ring a bell? And the person there's like, no, no, not, not to my knowledge, but they may have booked personal passage on any ship that came through at that time. I, you know, there's tons of ships here all the time. They're a little disheartened. Well, that's not going to help. So we need to go and we need to find a ship. Are there any passenger ships going east? And he's like, well, I'm sure there's a month. There's many of them out there. You know, ask. I don't have a list. I know what they bring in and I know what they're taking out. I don't care where they go. <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> you're, you're bothering me. I got a line behind you. Get out of the way so I can take more, take more money. I'm trying to do my job here. So they get on the docks. And they start going up the docks, and they're going to ships. Hi, we're looking to go book passage east, probably past Corman. Are you going that far? No, you're going to Paxwell. No, you're going to Thorman. No, you're okay. Everybody's going anywhere. They find an elven ship. You going past San Trial? And they're like, No, we never go past San Trial. And you're like, Oh, well, of course not. That would be our luck. So they're going down the dock. They've been doing it probably for about forty-five minutes to an hour without any luck. Because not a lot of people go that direction. Right? Corman's the furthest east of the southern kingdoms. And while Darsh has been a little ways out there, there's not a lot of large settlements for trade that direction. So it's very self-contained. When suddenly, about that time, that's right, I said about that time, twice this episode, they hear a voice. Maeve! There you are, lass! It's a pleasure to see you. And they all turn around and like, who the hell is this? And a man comes walking up towards them. Okay. The name of the ship. Wait a moment. So he is walking up and he's Maeve. There we go. And they turn, and Maeve gets a big smile on her face. Lyman! And walks up and embraces the man. Now Lyman barely comes to her shoulders. And she's like, what are you doing here? Now, don't know if anyone remember who Lyman is. He's like, well, actually I'm here looking for you. Your father sent us out a few weeks ago. Said that you and your friends might be in need of a ship, and we should be here at your disposal. Lyman, if you'll remember, was Dandy's first mate on the Miss Dandelion, who, upon Dandy's, basically gave him the ship, and he started working in Darsh. Not directly for Darsh, but occasionally took jobs and has been working around uh, there. He's, he and his crew still help hunters travel from place to place, but they take on work as well. And Darsh asked, would you mind going that direction and giving them a ride if they need one? And he's like, well, you know what? We owe your father and uh, Petal, your, the chance to meet Petal. He's, you can imagine how excited he is to see Petal. He's still Petal when she was like a baby several times. But the man doesn't get the serenity. He hasn't seen her as an adult. Petal's like, oh, mom told me all about you. And then there's the hugs and all that kind of stuff. 
I was like, the Miss Dandelion is here, and if you are in need of a ride, I just heard you saying you're trying to go east. Miss Dandelion is at your service. I can imagine they're all pretty excited about that. Ship is here. Petal, of course, get to ride on the ship that used to belong to her mom, right? That's a that's a big thing for her as well. Mom and Dad used to have this ship. I've heard stories about Lyman and undead hunting with him and his crew and all that kind of stuff. The time that she brought home the bag of hands and they were all running around the ship and that kind of stuff. That's a good. They have this opportunity. They now have a ship at their disposal. Now. They're preparing. They're like, excellent. We'll go get supplies. We need some stuff to go. And he's like, you don't worry about supplies. Your father's already taken care of it. Leans in and he goes, we have enough money to cover supplies. We've been keeping the ship supplied in case you need it. We can be ready to go literally within the hour. He doesn't want to say, we've got a bunch of money on the ship. He doesn't want to be like that. He's like, we've got, we've got what you need. We can go. They're like, that's excellent. Yes, we're going to go back to the inn and get our stuff. They go back to the inn. They're in. Staying at and gather their things, pay their tab. And Kip is like, well, I appreciate you guys Let me hang out with you. I've had uh, a lot of fun. I wish I could see how the story ends, but I wish you the very best of luck finding your friends. You know, I just go to the east on an adventure. You know, if you come back by this way sometime, stop and tell me so I can finish the tale. I've already got a ballad half written for the, you know, the tale of Seraph and his lost love and all those kind of things, right? All the all the stuff that a bard would do. And they're like, yeah, of course. And they start to leave. And Rand stops and he goes, do you want to come? And Kip's like, Kip's like, what? Excuse me? Would you like to come with us? And he looks at Artis. He goes, would that be all right? And Artis is like, yeah. I mean, yeah, that'd be, if you want to. We're heading out. We don't know where we're going or when we'll be back by here next. But yeah, you're you're welcome to come along if you'd like. Kip's like, really? You don't you don't mind that I'm you know tagging along? You don't know me that well. And they're like, no, yeah, yeah, you come along. You'd be entertaining, sure. Come and join up with us. Kip's like, yes, let me grab my stuff. And he goes and grabs his stuff from his room real quick. And and artist is like, Ran, are you sure? He's like, he's a nice guy. He's been very cool. Been helping us out. Definitely helped us out with the information. We wouldn't have been on this path or even known about that in if it wasn't for him. And, you know, genuinely a nice guy. Plus, maybe be helpful. We're traveling around. Maybe we could use Bard as part of our cover story or something. Artist is like, well, seems kind of weak since I'm a cleric and she's a paladin. But, yeah, that's I mean, we're fine. He's, we like being around him. So, yeah, I'm, if, 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 you, if you feel comfortable with it, we'll, we'll bring him. Sure enough, Kip returns downstairs. And he's got all of his stuff and a big smile on his face. And you imagine he's way older than all of them, but he's very like a like a been excited kid being asked to go on an adventure. So Kip goes with them down to the docks, and they meet the they find the Miss Dandelion. Lyman would have told them where it was, and the five of them get on the ship. There are some private rooms uh, that have that were always there before. Uh, the girls are given one room. The guys are given the other. It's a little cramped for Maeve, but she'll make it work. This was Darsh's boat at one time, but that's kind of Lyman's room now. He's got the captain's room, right? So uh, the crew sets off, and they begin to head east, though they don't know where they're going. They only know that they're heading east, and that probably further than Corman. But what's further than Corman? They have no idea. 
But hopefully they'll find out soon. And that is where we're going to end for today. Right at the two-hour mark. How convenient. How convenient. Again, thank you all for coming by and listening to my story today. I know that a lot of the story stuff that I set up is... Uh, this early in the adventure, and it probably doesn't feel early in this adventure, but I promise you, it really is. I'm still doing a lot of setup and uh, giving information to build up what's going on so we can get to the point where the meat happened. So, meat of the... When I say that, you know, we're going through the appetizers and we're going to get to the main course. Um, so, there's a lot of prep to build up from this. I'm, I'm really trying to build on Merged Worlds. I'm trying to, to open up some of the stuff we've not seen yet. Now we've got this pirate captain and his people. We've got that island. I'm definitely, as we move eastwards, both groups now, we're going to be going into lands and territories we've never really seen. So it's going to give me an opportunity to really show off some of the real diversity of how Merged Worlds is. You know what I mean? Uh, different creatures and land types and so on and so forth, uh, as well as uh, hopefully some very interesting uh, situations that these characters are going to find themselves thrust into. Will they meet up soon? Will they meet up ever? We'll have to find out. But uh, thank you all for coming and listening to my story today. I appreciate it. Um, this, of course, uh, if you had a good time, you haven't already, it'd be awesome if you click the like button. Even if it's 10 years down the road, it really does help the channel. If you're new here, be sure to subscribe. And if you have an iTunes or a Spotify account, it would be wonderful of you. If you wouldn't mind giving the uh, podcast a follow over there, give it all the stars, the thumbs up, uh, drop a review if you don't mind. Uh, all that stuff really helps the algorithm put Merge Worlds in front of more eyes and uh, I guess more ears is more accurate. And I just want to share it with as many people as possible. I'll work on the changing the uh, uh, chapter thing and maybe some different intros for the chapters over the next week or two and uh, maybe run some of that stuff by you guys on the Discord. So again, be sure to join the Discord. Link for that is down in the description of this video or on my website, onlydraven.com. All right? Well, thank you all for coming and let me tell my tale. You know, this is the favorite thing I get to do on this channel, and I only get to do that because you guys keep coming back, and I really appreciate that. Uh, but I am going to let you go for today. Next week will be an episode of Behind the Dice. Same time Thursday, and then the week after that, we'll be back here. I do have to give one minor thing I want to throw out real quick at the end of the stream. There is a tiny chance my schedule may have to change a little bit in the near future. Uh, I'm still planning my goals to keep Merge Worlds on Thursdays like normal. Uh, I'm, I don't think it's going to be affected, but... Uh, on the off chance it is, I thought I'd give a little bit of notice ahead of time. If I find out, I'll do my best to get on a day that works for as many people as possible. Uh, it, it'll still be every other week like it is. Uh, hopefully same time, same day. I just don't know for sure yet. But I did want to give a little heads up. I'll know soon, and when I do, I will share it with you guys. Uh, but that is all for today. Thank you very much for listening to Merge Worlds, and I hope you come back and listen to some more. All right? Have yourselves a great week.